9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host in New York City, and it's Thursday, and so therefore... Uh, co-host Ryan Goodman, also in New York City, is with us. How are you doing today, Ryan? Doing well, David. Thanks. And in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, we are joined by Barb McQuaid, who uh, has been collaborating with Ryan on some interesting things. She also has her own podcast. She was a former U.S. attorney. How are you, Barb? Doing great, David. Thank you. Uh, A little later, we will be joined by Kavita Patel, who is, uh, I think, in traffic. If I'm if I'm told uh, properly, but I you know I thought we 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 can start where where you, you guys left off because um, I think the two of you and and uh, uh, Joyce White also put together a list of questions for the January sixth commission, um, and uh, I want to start with your reactions to the first round of hearings. Um, which I will parenthetically note that I found riveting and moving, um, uh, which uh, involved opening statements from the members of the committee and then testimony from uh, two Washington, D.C. police officers and two Capitol police officers who participated um, in seeking to uh, uh, quell the the violent uh, insurrection that took place on January 6th. Let me start with you, Barb. What was your reaction just to this first first few hours of this committee's existence? I agree with you, David. I thought it was incredibly compelling. I found it riveting um, and also important. I think that um, there may have been a tendency to say, well, we've already heard from some of these officers. We know what they're going to say. And so hearing them testify will really only be redundant of what we've already seen and and what we know. But I I thought it was extremely important to provide that context for the work of this committee, especially since with with the passage of time since January 6th, we have seen uh, some members of the Republican Party trying to whitewash what happened that day and talking about the the attackers as ordinary tourists, or President Trump has talked about them as being very loving. And so to hear them describe what they experienced, what they saw, what they felt, their fears, you know, one described it as being engaged in hand-to-hand combat uh, in a medieval battlefield. Uh, two of them talked about thinking, this is how I'm going to die this day. This day. So I thought they uh, did a, a very good job of forcefully pushing back against that narrative that, uh, you know, and they talked about the weapons this group had from baseball bats and hockey sticks and table legs and, and other things. Uh, I thought they made a, a very compelling case uh, in that regard. Uh, so I thought that was uh, critically important to push back against that, uh, that false narrative. I think the other myth they helped debunk was that this was in any way uh, a, an attack by Antifa 
or the FBI or Black Lives Matter protesters. Uh, they said that everyone they encountered was there to support Donald Trump. They, they said Donald Trump sent them and they believe they were doing this for patriotic reasons for our government. And so um, I think that really opens the door to where this committee needs to go to finding those who planned this, uh, this attack. Ryan, what was your reaction? Um, so everything that the two of you have said, I, you know, I also thought was absolutely riveting, um, very powerful and very important to laying the first foundation for the rest of what the committee will be doing in a number of respects. So one is that um, not only did they speak to their experiences, but they also spoke to the need for accountability and that they want to see accountability. And one of the lines was by um, uh, Sergeant Gunnell, where he said, you know, we are not looking for recognition or for medals. We are looking for justice and accountability. And um, uh, Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn pleading to get to the bottom of it. Um, so I thought that was powerful. And I also thought it resembled in some important respects, the 9-11 families and the role that they played in terms of having a certain moral force pushing the 9-11 commission um, in a very positive direction, even pushing the creation of the 9-11 commission. So similarly here to see these people who were direct victims of um, the insurrection, I think created that moral force and it created in a way that um, Representative Raskin said, he said, you know, you have given us marching orders. Um, you have given us marching in a sense of like, you have told us the direction we need to go in. So I thought that was all very powerful. Um, and I, you know, I also thought there were powerful moments that had, that were not verbal. Um, so it's not their testimony, but just, we've seen so much of the footage. Some of the footage was new, but we've seen so much of the footage, but then to go from seeing the footage being shown to a quick, uh, take where you actually see the officer who was there watching the footage that was it almost tore me apart um just and you could see the anguish and the trauma that some of them were re-experiencing by watching the footage of that day um there's so to 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 show that to the american public i think is very powerful and hopefully in some regard to shame the heck out of some members of the republican members of the congress uh because these are the people that lay down the, you know risk their lives uh, to defend them, seeing that I thought was important. And then the last point I just mentioned is I thought it was really important how the officers foregrounded what I would just say it goes under the heading of white supremacy and that we understand January 6th as being caught up in many of those um, insurrectionists mobilized by um, white supremacist ideology and the, you know, Officer Dunn using the N-word to explain that how many times he was subject to the N-word that day and the ways in which the word was used um, against him and against um, his fellow officers so that people understand these weren't just dissatisfied, you know, people trying to overturn the government um, because they wanted Trump to win, but overturn the government, they wanted Trump to win and they're deeply, deeply racist, motivated by uh, white supremacists violent ideology, some of them, you know, there's a whole segment of different people within the, the group, but there's a large swath of it that is that. So Barb, listening to them, uh, what did you, what did you think of what you heard from the dais, from the chairman, 
uh, from the other members of the committee? I thought that the chairman set a very good tone right from the beginning, uh, making this a very sober hearing. And throughout the day, I was frequently saying to myself, Nancy Pelosi really did an excellent job in keeping off of this committee, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, Jim Jordan in particular, I'm sure we've all seen his act in congressional hearings. Um, He's a disruptor. He's a grenade thrower. He loves to just uh, push people's buttons. He is not there for in a quest for the truth. And so um, Kevin McCarthy appointed or recommended Jim Jordan for the committee. And Nancy Pelosi said, no, I mean, both he and Jim Banks of Indiana, Jordan, of course, is from Ohio, Republican members of Congress, both uh, voted against the certification of the election. So they're kind of part of this big lie and false narrative in the first place. And then they've also said things that are contradictory since uh, there was discussion of forming this. You know, they wanted, Jim Banks wanted to expand the scope of the investigation to include Black Lives Matter protests. I mean, come on, that's just apples and oranges. There, um, the one had nothing to do with the other, and the Black Lives Matter protests have nothing to do with trying to overthrow the government on on January six. Um, and they, they've they've all said, both of them have said it's explosive things that I think uh, it was such a service to keep them off. I was very impressed with the two Republican members who were on Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, both of whom. Uh, talked about the seriousness of this. Uh, They both uh, called out their own party for the way they have tried to minimize what happened that day and talked about how important it is to uh, find out every detail and hold accountable the wrongdoers. So I thought the questioning was um, refreshingly straightforward and designed to elicit facts as opposed to the political grandstanding that we sometimes see at these hearings. Ryan, when I listened to it, I thought this seems like a bipartisan committee that, you know, you know, I I thought Nancy Pelosi, to pick up on what Barb said, had had played it exactly right. Uh, And, you know, you know, Liz Cheney's last name is Cheney. You know, no one is ever going to think Liz Cheney is, you know, some fringe liberal Republican who doesn't get it. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, you, you see what uh, Kinziger talks about and his service and, you know, it's, you know, he's, he speaks in Republican tropes and, and sort of have them on there. It felt to me like, you know, this was going to play like a bipartisan thing. And you could imagine Liz Cheney or Kinziger questioning people in the future and, and it, and it losing any sort of partisan flavor. I mean, did you, do you, did you agree with that? Or, or, you know, am I being a little over optimistic about this? I agree. I think I could identify one edge along which it might be over optimistic, but um, I agree. I, you know, bipartisan, nonpartisan, however one wants to put it. I, I think it was a showcasing like Congress at its best, showcasing congressional fact finding at its best, but maybe it was an easier set of circumstances and the facts that they were trying to get after and and air in this particular hearing. Um, Because this particular hearing was really about the experience of those officers on the day. And I think other hearings, it'll be, other hearings will more directly implicate certain 
members of the Republican leadership. So they might come across as being noisier with respect to is it bipartisan or not and what's relationship of Liz Cheney to the Republican Party or not. But I still think what, you know, what an incredibly positive uh, beginning and they're gonna have to try to figure out how to manage that because the elephant in the room is that of course, um, as Officer Dunn was pointing out, um, the person who sent the hitman is Donald Trump. And this is going to be in some respects an investigation of Donald Trump. It's an investigation of a lot of other things too that are important for public policy purposes, like where's the intelligence failures, where did the intelligence failures occur within our intelligence agencies? So I'm not sure, it's gonna be a little bit more difficult to walk that line, I think, in the future. I just wanted to point out one thing because I've been waiting for an opportunity to point it out, but there's something also that's so bad faith about Jim Banks. And so everybody knows, I think, or you know, a lot of people know um, what's so bad faith about Jim Jordan. But Jim Banks distinguished himself um, not only by uh, trying to overturn the election through the blocking certification, he made a statement that's on his website when he, uh, Kevin McCarthy picked him to be the kind of ranking member on the committee. And I just want to read it because when I read it to myself, I first thought it was a typo, but it's not. Um, he said, I will do everything, quote, I'll do everything possible to give the American people the facts about the lead up to the, to the January 6th, sorry, up to January 6th, the riot that day, and the responses from Capitol leadership and the Biden administration. <laughs> so just, not the Trump administration, the Biden administration. It's just, so the counterfactual that Barb uh, mentioned, of like imagining what that would have been like to have that injected into those solemn proceedings, trying to have these officers speak their truth um, would have been a, a political circus, not a fact-finding endeavor. Well, there was an element of political circus, Barb. You know, um, uh, Kevin McCarthy tried to counter-program it. He brought out Elise Stefanik, who will say anything, apparently, um, in order to, you know, justify her having replaced Liz Cheney in the Republican leadership. And in this case, she managed to... Uh, blame Nancy Pelosi or sought to blame Nancy Pelosi for the attack, uh, even though it was clear that Nancy Pelosi was one of the main targets of the attack and they were looking for her. And had they found her, something really awful would have happened. Uh, and then, as if that were not bad enough, um, the sort of they dispatched a clown car full of additional Republicans down to the DOJ uh, including Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, to plea for good treatment for the prisoners, seeking to portray the people that we saw in all of these videos who were violent thugs bent upon uh, undermining uh, constitutional process in the United States. Uh, but they were taking their side. Um, and this was just day one. You know, you can only imagine what would happen if McCarthy is called before the committee or Jordan is called before the committee or Trump is called before the committee or the committee starts sort of hitting pay dirt and says, oh, look, Steve Bannon on the fifth said all hell was going to break loose. Trump said that, you know, they knew they planned this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, they started crazy. I don't know how much crazier they get. What was your reaction to all that? Yeah, I, I just don't understand the political calculus. I mean, it's bad enough with and you've got Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik with their strategy of saying that 
this was all Nancy Pelosi's fault. I guess as Speaker of the House, somehow she's supposed to ensure that there is um, that the the Capitol is not attacked. Um, but uh, it, it seems that I, I heard this this uh, criticism of that strategy. If if they really believed that the investigation would expose wrongdoing by Nancy Pelosi, they would not have fought so hard to prevent these hearings from occurring. So that's just silly. Um, at least they are taking the side of law and order and, and suggesting that the attack was blameworthy. <laughs> Whereas the Gates group, who's at the Justice Department, this group is really uh, off the deep end because they are taking the side of the protesters, as you said. And I think to call them protesters is too kind a term because the ones who have been detained are those who have been found by a judge to be either a danger to the community or a risk of flight. These are the most serious offenders who've been charged. These are not the people who are getting misdemeanors for merely entering a restricted area or, or, or some of the lower level ones. These are the higher level ones. And demanding that they find out whether these prisoners are being properly treated without any basis to assume the contrary. They are in the Bureau of Prisons. They are being treated the way all prisoners are treated in the Bureau of Prisons, which is pretty good um, compared. I mean, nobody wants to lose their liberty, but in terms of mistreatment, there's no indication of that. So I find these political strategies to be really curious. I know that these hearings were carried on Fox News, and I would guess that many people who call themselves Republicans would have been very empathetic to these police officers as they describe what they experienced that day. And so to take the position opposite them strikes me as, you know, not only morally wrong and factually incorrect, but just politically foolish. Yeah, Brian, uh, one of the, you know, uh, there were many striking moments in this hearing, but one of them uh, came, I, I think, uh, during the questioning of, of, of Jamie Raskin, or one of the... Um, uh, police officers pulled out law book and said, here's, here's how the law defines domestic terrorism. And, you know, it was very clear that under the law as written, these people were terrorists and the Republicans have actually become pro-terrorist. You know, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it seems almost incomprehensible um, but, you know, what was your what was your reaction to how the Republicans are trying to spin it? I agree with what Barb said to the point that it really is flummoxing to think that McCarthy would not try to rein in the group that went over to the DOJ and the four prominent people. In fact, I'm not sure who else was there. The four people that were listed on many uh, news sites, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gosar and others. Um, also are Republican members of Congress in a very small minority, 21, uh, who voted against awarding medals to the Capitol Police officers. And is it, so that part of it, and then in terms of like lining up with um, the, you know, the idea of uh, lining up with the terrorists, it's just, it was interesting to see um, Raskin also got an opportunity this week to ask a representative Andrew Clyde if he wanted to clarify his earlier comment that they looked like tourists. And there's this eight minute video that's still available on the CNN website. And Clyde is just ducking and diving. And then Raskin's very good about saying, well, what do you think? Either the officers who said these were no tourists, they were terrorists, or they were terrorists, which is it? Tourists, terrorists. And he wouldn't answer that question, which is just so absurd. Like, 
to not be able to answer that question. And the FBI director is calling them, they're obviously terrorists. And I thought it was moving for the officer to say, I'm going to, I've been using the word terrorist. People might be wondering why I'm using the word terrorist. I'm going to read from the code. <laughs> um, so absolutely, it puts it in very stark terms. So uh, to me as well, I just can't understand in some sense, in some sense, I can't understand the political move, except for the fact that that segment of the Republican Party really is speaking to a very small audience. And that audience is a very radicalized audience of QAnon and other uh, parts of uh, an audience that have been subject to so much disinformation and the like. Uh, that's that's who they're trying to speak to, I suppose. I, I suppose. So, um, you know, as as we were listening to all of this, and it was quite striking, and and as everybody has said here, off to a good start. Um, I was looking for clues as to what was coming next, right? And Chairman Thompson said, "Well, we're not going to take, uh, or I've I've given the heads up that we may be working during the August recess." And uh, subsequently, his office has said that the first subpoenas will be going out soon. Um, and during the course of the hearing, there was an emphasis, uh, which I w welcomed, although I, I did not really fully expect it, on planning the origins, what was going on in the White House, et cetera. In other words, you know, the safe path for this is to, to continue to have conversations with, you know, primarily the heads of the Capitol Police, you know, like, why didn't you know about this? What did the FBI tell you? Why didn't they know about it? Things that have already been covered in hearings. Where the meat of this lies, where we all want to know what's going on is who planned it, who paid for it, who knew about it in the White House? How did they prep? How was their coordination with the White House? How did the White House handle, handle it in the day of the event? Seems like that's what Liz Cheney wants to hear. Uh, it seems like that's what the officers who are testifying wants to hear. Barb, what do you think we're going to see? What do you think the shape of this process is going to be? Yeah, I think that's a really important part. And as you say, Officer Dunn gave that really compelling testimony when he said, I'll use the analogy of a hitman. When you go after a hitman, you don't just jail the hitman, you, you jail the person who sent the hitman. That's what I want you to get to the bottom of. Um, Ryan spearheaded a, a great project that uh, the three of us wrote in Just Security, as you mentioned, David, at the outset. And that's one of the topics that we brainstormed in, uh, uh, in that piece where uh, you know we thought of potential witnesses and documents in terms of categories. And one was the organizers and funders and supporters. And I think in that regard, you know, you have to look at people like Roger Stone. He was meeting with these Oath Keepers uh, at the Trump International Hotel the night before. Rudy Giuliani, who's out there talking about uh, trial by combat. Um, there was this Republican Attorneys General Association that was uh, involved in robocalls to try to encourage people to come to Washington, D.C. Uh, there's this group called the Rule of Law Defense Fund that was involved in organizing. You know, all of those groups, what was your role? What was your goal in getting these people to come to Washington? You know, certainly peaceful protest has its place. And if that's all they were doing, that's fine. Uh, but in terms of inciting people, uh, you know, it, it reminds me a bit of the way we saw ISIS use the internet to crowdsource terrorism. You know, you send out the, the outrageous uh, messages in hopes that somebody will take the bait and show up and act on it. 
Um, and so to what extent was this organized uh, and to what extent was this organic? I think that that is something that those officers and our democracy deserve answers for. Yeah, Ryan, you know, on that point, we've learned that uh, Representative Mo Brooks of the Department of Justice has said was not doing his official capacity when he was inciting the crowd to write, uh, was wearing um, a ballistic vest, um, you know, dur during all of this. There were a lot of people who brought weapons. There were a number of people who were arrested with weapons. Uh, by weapons, I mean guns and ammunition. There were um, bombs found. There were other things used as weapons. There were people who brought gas to this thing. Um, uh, there were fatalities. There were hundreds of injuries. Uh, you know, this, this was a violent attack, and it was clear that it was going to be violent to many people, including, you know, Steve Bannon and apparently Representative Brooks and presumably people in the White House uh, in advance. And at no time did the president intervene to try to stop it. Um, seems very salient to me. Do you think there's any chance that we're going to get people close to the president to testify? Do you think there's any chance that the, the members of Congress who seem to be egging the crowd on or even aiding the crowd, whether it's Taylor Greene or, or Bobart or, or uh, uh, Brooks or Jordan or Cruz or Hawley, will, will testify? Will, will, will there be any way to force them in front of this committee? Um, so I think that um, there might, first of all, be a number of documents and records and phone records that the committee will be able to subpoena. And then once they have that, and we'll be able to isolate the kinds of questions that they would be able to ask people that they would have a hard time um, not answering truthfully. And I think that there are so many people involved potentially with their communications that they might be able to do closed questions with each of the individuals. And then uh, they know that the others might talk. Um, and we, especially with the committee in which it's unified, um, it's not like there's gonna be some members of the committee that are gonna try to leak to the other side what's going on. Um, so that all puts me in a, I think, that, I think they're in a strong position and I think they could subpoena as a matter of law. It's about the political will, it's the political concern and the, how that might um, break a line with respect to uh, could that use as a precedent in the future if Kevin McCarthy is the, ne the next uh, Speaker of the House. But that's what I also mean by the communications. Maybe the first step they take is the communications that uh, Representative Bobert had with some of the militia groups, if there are such, um, the rally organizers, et cetera. Um, and if that turns up something, then they would have a very a much stronger basis and she'd be one of the first. Um, so the poster child of the kinds of members that they would first subpoena would be potentially pretty powerful. And there is a bit of a precedent for this in recent times, at least, there might be more that I'm unaware of. But if we think about the Ukraine impeachment investigation, remember that the report that came out of the House included um, phone records uh, that included uh, Devin Nunes' phone records uh, with some of the individuals that they were investigating. 
so that's that part of it has already been done before and very recently. Uh, Barb, I can imagine um, Bobert, Taylor Green, Jordan, Holly, Cruz, those characters, Gates, you know, burning their subpoenas in a small rally in, in front of the Capitol building uh, and saying, you know, what are you going to do about it? Come get me. And we've seen that congressional subpoenas lack teeth. Are, is there any way to compel people to actually follow through with this stuff? I think one thing that might be different this time around is that um, the Justice Department is there to enforce them. In the Trump administration, uh, the Justice Department was not willing to go to bat. And you know they were, I think, kowtowing to Donald Trump in many ways. Uh, and so you couldn't count on them to enforce subpoenas. I think you can in the Biden administration. I think that if, um, if they were to do that, to burn them, they could bring a case for contempt uh, and that could be sufficient to coerce compliance. Um, the biggest problem I see is how slow the process still works. And Donald Trump really, I think, pointed out the gap in the law that exists there. He was able to stall, stall, stall compliance with subpoenas until after he was out of office. And I think that is a real gap in the law. It would be nice to see some changes in the law to permit a, an expedited process when we see these kinds of situations so that they don't take years and years to resolve in the courts. But I think that might be one of the key differences is a Justice Department that's willing to play by the rules and not uh, try to um, protect those who've been subpoenaed. Yeah, and this Justice Department actually this week sent a couple of signals that that was, that was where they're uh, going to come out. One of the things that seems a potential trap in all of this, but also seems an important element of all of this, Ryan, is the degree to which your argument is that by fostering the big lie, you fomented this insurrection. Uh, and in particular, by the president fostering, uh, fo you know, the big lie, he led to this insurrection. Uh, a story has uh, uh, been making the rounds in the past 24 hours that the president regularly was calling the Justice Department in the wake of the election saying, uh, investigate this, you know, investigate this, this, this theory of fraud or that theory of fraud without evidence. Um, that seems like a completely inappropriate thing for a president to do. But is that a bridge too far for an investigation like this, or is that essential to an investigation like this? Um, so I think it's, I think there's a important strategy with respect to public messaging and informing the public that I don't know what the committee would want to do about it, which is, and I thought it was a missed opportunity with the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. If you're going to try to impeach about the incitement and the rest of it, how do you do that unless you first deal with the big lie? And that public perceptions, if somebody believes the big lie, then they do kind of side with some of the people who went into the Capitol, didn't maybe commit violence or something, but a lot of them are there because 
they they were fighting against a coup. They were fighting to prevent the government from being taken over by somebody who didn't win in their minds. And so if you bought the big lie, everything else looks very different. So the impeachment managers didn't go at that at all. They just went for the incitement part. Um, so I wonder if the committee maybe has an opportunity there. And um, I do think it is very much within the four corners of this committee's mandate to go right at the question of the president's use of his <clears throat> power to try to pressure the Justice Department. And because it's, it's directly related to January 6th and, and all the rest of it. The only question is maybe the committee does not need to do that because there are two committees that are already investigating that. The Senate Judiciary Committee and the House Oversight Committee are inve investigating that very nucleus of facts with respect to President Trump calling the acting attorney general. It wasn't even just regular, it was at least once a day. <laughs> so every single day he was calling him to try to pressure him to investigate baseless uh, fraud allegations about the election and overturn the election. And um, so you, so it's not, it is kind of nice that we have these concurrent um, investigations. And that's where the Department of Justice's letter that went out to the, the former acting attorney general and the others was specific in a certain sense to those in, on, ongoing investigations. It said, you can speak to the House Oversight Committee and you can speak to the Senate Judiciary Committee, total green light. We're not gonna try to block it through any invocation of executive privilege. Um, so I think all of that uh, will, will surface in some sense through the other committees, even if it doesn't come through with the select committee. And then the last point of it is, um, it's not just that it was improper. I think it's a, to me, I don't quite understand why it's not just actually a very clean shot at the Hatch Act. And the Hatch Act um, has a criminal provision and the criminal provision is for pressuring another um, US official or subordinate to try to utilize their office for uh, political purposes. And George Conway on Twitter last night put the two things together. He said, look at the DOJ letter. It says the reason we are green lighting you is because this involves an activity of the president to use pressure. The allegation is to use pressure for his personal political purposes, not for governmental purposes. That's the, and then George just did that and he juxtaposed it with the Hatch Act provision. And almost like one plus one equals two. And then today crew submitted a complaint to try to um, jumpstart a kind of criminal investigation at the Justice Department with that set of facts. So I think it's fair ground and, and um, fortunately there are multiple committees that might be looking at it. Okay, so what I'm gonna do here is the following. I'm gonna ask each one last question on this. Kavita has joined us. Hi, Kavita. Hi, David. I, I, I really did come uh, to listen and happy to report that I think my traffic was generated by protesters to the Biden vaccine mandate announcement, given, <laughs> given the signs that I saw along Connecticut Avenue. And uh, well, so, yeah, that's that's bananas. <laughs> so 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 what I want to do is I want to come back to that. I'd like to take the next three or four minutes and finish up this discussion here about um, the January 6th commission. And then I want to turn to uh, Kavita and, uh, and and talk a little bit about where we are with the pandemic, if that's okay. For another 10 minutes, Barb, you can pop off unless you have some questions about the pandemic you want to ask Kavita. Um, but uh, uh, Barb, 
you were a prosecutor. Give me the five people you most want to see in front of this committee. Well, I, I think I would put them into categories. One is I would want to know um, about the intelligence failure. And I think Chris Ray uh, at the FBI is probably the best person to ask about that. Ryan and I have talked about this before with you, David, about how he really evaded the questions in the past by talking about how we can't just look at social media, uh, when in fact they absolutely can do that as long as they open a threat assessment. Why did you not open a threat assessment in this case? I, I would wanna know about that. Um, then I would wanna know about uh, why when they did have some information, there was that information that they got out of the Norfolk office that some protesters were planning war at the Capitol. Why was that net red flag? Wasn't, why wasn't the sharing with uh, everyone involved uh, more effective when I think most of us who are casual observers knew that there was likely to be a very violent uh, mob scene at the Capitol that day. Um, three, I would want to talk about the delay in getting reinforcements to the Capitol. So who is that? Um, who, who would be most involved there? Probably a number of witnesses, uh, but perhaps the acting secretary of defense is the most important. There was you know, several hours before the uh, National Guard showed up that day. And so uh, what, what, what was that about? What was the reason for that? Uh, next, I would probably want to talk to somebody who was with President Trump that day, maybe um, the chief of staff, uh, Meadows, who was with him most of the day. Uh, what was President Trump doing? Why did he delay? Why did he do you know, three takes of this video? What took him so long before he uh, was up there um, putting on that that video asking the protesters to go home because I think that magnified some of the loss. And then stepping back and trying to figure out what was the organizational process here? Who organized this? And I'm not sure who the one witness is there. I think you might have to um, do a serial uh, of documents and questions to get to who might have been involved in planning. But I pr probably start with Roger Stone because we know that he was meeting with Oath Keepers and others on the night of January 5th, and he is uh, someone who is proud of his track record as what he describes as dirty tricks, and I would probably describe as insurrection. So I guess those might be my top five. Okay, Ryan, to wrap this discussion up, who would you add to the list? Um, I guess I'd add Chairman Milley, um, Joint Chiefs of Staff. I want to know why specifically he was concerned that Trump would try to use the military to hold onto power. There's also a January 4th cabinet level meeting called by um, Acting Secretary of Defense Miller, where Miller and Milley say to their other, uh, to the cabinet, they propose revoking the permits for people to gather at the Capitol on January 6th out of fear of violence. So I wanna know why did they know that? on January 4th, and apparently the consensus of the law enforcement community, quote unquote, was to tell them that it was under control, that they didn't need to do that. And that's that, all of that is in this juicy paragraph in the joint Senate report. So I wanna know about, I wanna get inside that January 4th meeting. And then, you know, I totally agree with everything Barb said, including the Barb's, more, you know, 10 times the expert on this than I am. Um, in addition to Meadows and getting inside that White House and what was going on, I, I just think fortunately or unfortunately, uh, Ivanka Trump um, has the answers. 
uh, in the Carol Lennigan, Philip Rucker book, and then other books as well, um, and other um, reporting, she goes into Trump's office multiple times to plead with him to make a statement to get his supporters to stand down. And he rebuffs her. So I want to know, uh, what did she tell him? Did she say the, pre the, vice, pre the vice president's life is at risk? Um, members of Congress' lives are, lives are at risk? Um, because then he knowingly, <laughs> in that sense as well, was told specifically why to do it and he didn't. Um, so I think those are a couple other people I would add to that list. Okay. Guys, that was a terrific discussion of this. Barb, thank you so much for joining us for, for, for this. And hopefully we'll have you back again uh, soon. Uh, but uh, 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 as, this, as this progresses, we'll revisit it. Um, uh, Ryan, please stay. Barb, thank you very much. Uh, You're welcome. And, Thanks for having me. Great discussion. And, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank and you. Kavita, um, the, we, we've gone from COVID's over. We're going to plan our <laughs> vacations. You were planning your vacation. We we're all going to, everything was going to be great. <laughs> uh, and, and you said it was. So mm -hmm. I, this is on you. Yep. And then, you know, we, in the, you know, over the last couple of weeks, it was, you know, 10, 15,000 cases a day, 20,000 cases a day, 30,000 cases. You know, now it's projected, and then the, it was projected to peak around 60,000 cases mm -hmm. a day. And now they've revisited that. And now they're saying it may peak around 240,000 cases a day. That, uh, that you know we we are in a very bad way because of a few states the president got out and he pleaded with people today to get vaccinated so answer something for me cuz it's just us here you me and ryan <laughs> like it is every thursday why are we not telling people that they have to be vaccinated why is the president you know, having a conversation about mask mandates and not vaccine mandates. He's planning to, you know, do a, a vaccine mandate in the, in the federal government. What, are we afraid the lunatics will howl louder? What is going on? I, I so I, <laughs> I, I definitely uh, remember telling you everything's going to be perfect and fine <laughs> this summer. That sounds exactly like me. Um, I, yeah, that's that's I your brand. It is, yeah, yeah. It, it is. Uh, so I, I will. I do not. There is legal reasons that some people cite because the vaccines are under an emergency authorization, even despite having um, two state supreme uh, two state supreme courts as well as a number of other kind of legal bodies, EEOC and others say that you can. Um, I think it has to do with something that Joe Biden, the candidate said, if you'll recall, and um, he kind of reemphasized, he said, of course we can't mandate it. We can't force people to put something in their body. And I remember that vividly. Uh, and I remember thinking, <laughs> oh shit. We, like this was one of those moments, by the way, I had that same moment when Bre President Obama said, if you like your doctor, you can keep him or her. And I was like, Oh shit! No, you can't say that. Like I just knew, I knew so much about health insurance that no, that's not possible. Same feeling I had, and I'm not saying that that's the statement that's causing the White House to not go that step. I'm just saying that that is a reflection of I think why you are not going to see 
um, certainly not the administration or anybody kind of close to the administration argue for a federal man we're not even mandating it in the military right so i do think it's you're asking the right question i think the fact that we saw so many states and now the federal employees are going to have basically instead of a mandate it's a requirement and it's onerous if you don't show proof of vaccination but you can still work and be in the workplace without a vaccine and I think you're right, David, like we're, our country is coming in, coming to a reckoning, which Laura Garrett predicted on this very podcast of, you know, we're kind of at this war against the unvaccinated because we're resentful over what that population has kind of held us to by not getting vaccinated. By the way, she predicted that last week. We haven't quite got there uh, in, 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 in one week. Um, uh, Brian, uh, surely you remember when Kavita said everything was going to be fine. Yeah, I did. Um, do, what, what questions do you have for Kavita, Ryan? Um, do I get a reimbursement for uh, having to yeah. take my trip to Disney World next week? A hundred. I hope you bought it. I'm not kidding, Ryan. Go get insurance. I think you can still purchase insurance like okay. 72 hours before the trip. I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but once Disney put in masks and indoor spaces, I was like, oh, man, this is. Uh... And by the way, just the like all joking aside, I'll ask your question, Ryan. I was just going to say what's unfolding, David, clinically, which we're not, you know, there's just too much noise on the media, including myself. Like what we're seeing unfold clinically is that people who are getting sick with this version of the virus, are, of course, they're younger, et cetera but they're not responding to the medications the way we would expect, which is also a bad sign. So it's, it's just a signal that not the worst that we feared, you know, that it escapes immunity, but it signals to me that that's possible. And that scares me. I guess one question is, do you think that the recent developments might push towards emergency authorization for under 12 year olds? Uh, great question. I think it, so no, I don't think the FDA works that way. And we've seen the FDA not um, kind of respond to the pressure to have the EUA converted to an approval, right, Ryan, which that Pfizer and Moderna have applied for since May. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because uh, the FDA just gave direction to Pfizer and Moderna that for the under 12 age group, they need to expand the number of children enrolled in trials, um, essentially doubling it. And so this is an FDA that's not going to do anything on an accelerated timetable for any reason. And I would say that's actually not a bad thing, but you know, that's just me. <laughs> so I don't think we'll have, uh, even though there's been lots of like the Pfizer CEO and you know, there's no motivation there, but um, there's all these reports of like a vaccine available by start of school. There's just no way. I have so many ways to go with all of this. No, um, we'll do. I'll, I'll I'll be back next week. For yeah, well, well, let's just do five more five more minutes of this. Um, our our friend Chris Cotborn, the producer, sent a little note just now. It said Biden is now asking cities and states to pay newly vaccinated people yep. hundred bucks. Yep. What do you think of that? And are there other incentives that could work? Uh, Chris adds, mordantly, without the obvious one of not dying. Right. Yeah. The incentive of not dying. Uh, I just saw Ron Klain tweet uh, out to that was one of like at some point in the last when I was I was in traffic to Governor Tim Waltz of Minnesota, you know, 
this is real leadership because he announced that he would give people a hundred dollars. And I, I, I actually, look, I think it's going to make some people get vaccinated. Is it going to make a hundred million people get vaccinated? Probably not, but it will probably nudge people over the edge. I think the open criticism is that if I were to try to be critical of the Biden administration, I'd say, oh, that's great. You know, all of us who did our job, did, did what we were supposed to do, got vaccinated, wanted to get vaccinated. We get nada. Now you're rewarding people basically because they were like children in the corner. Not, not everybody, but they were like children in the corner that wouldn't, you know, eat their vegetables. So it's, it's, it's everything that goes against what um, I want to do because I want to do what I think you're suggestion, suggesting, which is a mandate and a requirement, whatever you want to call it, just like I have to do in hospitals. And, and we're starting to see more private organizations do it. I wish, I wish the president, instead of asking city leaders to do this, by the way, where are they getting this money from? I guess that's not detailed, but it just seems like with all that's going on, this is not the best way to use funds. But at the end of the day, David, if it brings us to some normality, I'm, I guess I'm fine with it. I don't know. There's something about it that's really bugging me. It, it does bug me. I can't articulate it though. What is, I agree. What is it? What is it? You know, why are we rewarding it? these right. people right. who've dragged their feet and right. put their neighbors and families at risk? Right. And right. why do we have to? You know, they have right. to wear a seatbelt. They have to stop at a stop sign. Yeah, where they does can't it stop? smoke on an airplane. Well, David's they right. They need certain vaccines to get into school. Yeah. Where does it and, stop? You know, it's just it's just freaking do, ridiculous. Do we do we pay Trump supporters who didn't participate in January 6th? Because they seem to, you know, <laughs> like, is that I mean, what is it? What, when does it stop? You're yeah, absolutely no, no. Right. If you're really stupid about it, we'll give you a thousand bucks. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Is a hundred dollars. No, I think. Look, so here on Deep State, to make me incredibly unpopular, even with our most liberal listeners, I actually want insurance premiums to go up for people who are not vaccinated. And well, and that that might be what's considered the most punitive, kind of um, in many ways regressive, you know, just horrible. I don't give a crap anymore. I'm, I mean, I'm watching people generate hundreds of thousands of dollars in unnecessary hospitalizations and long-term care stays and you, me, and Ryan, I mean, we're paying for it. And that's not acceptable anymore. Not acceptable. Crazy. And, you know, when the coming recession hits or the coming, yep. you know, wave of shutdowns happen, you know, these people are going to then demand, you know, another kind of bailout. A hundred percent. No, you, you, you hit it, David. That's why I, it's bugging me anyway. Okay, Brian, last question. Yes. Um. I guess it would be helpful to explain not just the vaccines, but also the mask mandates that just got flipped. Yeah. Um, so, and maybe just to talk through why there are mask mandates for vaccinated people. Yeah. Um, and I guess one part of it is, so to me, I think of it as um, somebody used the example, um, I forget whom, but maybe many people do about drunk driving. So that's the one that you all did sure. mention. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like you, you need to get a vaccine, you need to be vaccinated, you need to wear a mask because you can't say I get to make a personal choice about my own risks. It's not about your own risks. You're risking everybody else. You can't say right. I'm in the car drunk, uh, drunk because that's the risk I'm willing to take for myself. <laughs> right. Um, that, that applies to the mask mandates too, and essential right. mask, mandate, uh, mask recommendations coming from CDC. Are there also concerns about um, breakthrough cases in which it looks like some of the statistics say that if there's a breakthrough with 
the Delta variant, that there's a pretty sizable percentage of those individuals who have long-term significant effects that don't maybe land them up in hospital or uh, dead, right? but are pretty significant and maybe have very long-term effects of which we don't know right now. Is that right? Right. Yeah, that's correct. So I'll just summarize. <clears throat> Number one, uh, there's data that's going to be published tomorrow by the CDC, is what, which is what they use to substantiate the reversal in their mass guidance. And it has to do with a little slightly higher breakthrough rate, but even more concerning was breakthroughs are able to transmit even mild infections, mild breakthrough infections to transmit effectively to unvaccinated people, which only adds more gasoline to the fire. So that's one on masks. And then number two, I actually make the masks uh, mandate equivalent to we, we tried the honor system, it didn't work. And now we can't trust the honor system. And that's what I think is the most essential part of a mask mandate, frankly. And then number three, um, Ryan, to your point about the study, Israeli study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, over 1400 healthcare workers who are generally high risk people, um, of which there was a 2% breakthrough infection rate, 20% of those people, small, small n, 39 had long long-term symptoms. So just a, you know, concerning sign. Well, there are a lot of concerning signs out there. Um, this is a very worrisome moment. It's more worrisome than it was last week. I just saw um, uh, uh, estimate today that uh, in terms of excess deaths associated with this period, we'll pass the million excess deaths mark yeah. in October. Yep. So, so we're just a couple of months away from passing total uh, likely death toll, official plus unreported, yep. uh, to associated with this to 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 a million. Um, uh, I, you know, I, we'll 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 keep talking about it. Obviously, Kavita and I, you know, I, I, I mentioned this on Twitter before I came on the air here, but no one is allowed to listen to this podcast unless they're vaccinated. You know, we, it's that's it's right. easy. If we it's believe easy. in these mandates, we have that's to live right. up to them. That's right. If you don't have a vaccination, stop listening. Yeah, exactly. I love it. And uh, and I'm you know I promise you between now and the next podcast, I will sit with Chris and we will come up with a good big discount. And if you <laughs> send us an email picture of your vaccine card, you'll be able to become a member for half price. I love it. Okay. So, you know, like, let's let, you know, we're this, we, you know, you guys out there are the nerd elite of America, um, you know, live, li live the life, walk the walk, talk the talk. Uh, we'll be back next week uh, for more of this uh, with uh, Ryan and Kavita and undoubtedly somebody else. Absolutely fascinating. Um, and uh, please join us. And in the interim, if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you if you go outside, you go into a, a public place, uh, you know, in, indoors, wear a mask um, uh, and be careful because it's it's not you know, it's not what it was. Um, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Barb. Thank you, Kavita. Uh, and if you want more about what we're doing, go to the DSRnetwork.com and uh, and you find it all there. Bye bye, everybody. And be safe.